Science takes flight at last for human goals. This new age builds a better kind of city, close to the soil once more, as molded to our human wants as planes are shaped for speed. New cities take form, green cities. They're built into the countryside. They're ringed with trees and fields and gardens. In the 1930s, in the midst of the Great Depression, a man named Rexford Guy Tugwell had an idea. An idea to build an ideal community. One that would resettle low-income families from the filth and crime of the cities to green towns that would promote community and a healthy, wholesome lifestyle. Little self-contained utopias inspired by the garden cities of 19th century England. Tugwell's vision was realized through the work of the Resettlement Administration under the mandate of President Roosevelt's New Deal program. Three green towns were built, Greendale, Wisconsin, Greendale, Ohio, and Greenbelt, Maryland. Today, the community of Greenbelt, now tucked among other suburbs of Washington, D.C., has managed to preserve not just the homes in this public housing project, but also much of the community lifestyle for which it was designed. On a sweltering July day, I visited the Greenbelt Museum to learn more about the history of the town, its evolution over the years, and to find out if it really was the utopia that its founders claimed it would be. Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman, a museum consultant specializing in podcasting for museums. And this is a show for people who love museums, stories, culture, and exploring the world. Museums are the keepers of our history and culture, but they are also reflections of who we are now. In each season of this podcast, I explore a different country, state, or region through its museums. In season one, I traveled around Iceland, and now I'm visiting the museums of Maryland to discover how they reflect and shape this state's unique identity. This episode is sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. Greenbelt was built, uh, the three reasons that primarily it was built was to be a place to put people to work. So it, it literally was a relief project. They had busloads of people coming to do the work of building the community. It was also built um, to relieve the housing shortage that was happening in Washington, D.C. at the time. And then the third reason was really to be a model of modern town planning. This was a relatively new field that was happening at the time. And they really had some of the best and brightest of of that field and also of architects, planners. You know, they worked with an interior designer. There were many different people they worked with uh, to try to establish this community and really make it the best that it could be. It was very experimental. It was very expensive. And it was very controversial. My name is Megan Searing Young, and I'm the director of the Greenbelt Museum in Greenbelt, Maryland. Quick history refresher. The New Deal was President Franklin D. Roosevelt's response to the market crash of 1929 and the resulting Great Depression. It was a series of programs, public work projects, financial reforms, and regulations enacted in the 1930s. It was a hard time for America. People were losing their homes, their farms, and their hope for the future. 
The New Deal employed about 8 million people to work on everything from building bridges to capturing America on canvas. It also created many agencies dedicated to lifting people out of dire circumstances and setting the country on a path to recovery. There were three green towns, and these sites were all chosen very carefully by the resettlement administration as places that had large enough populations that they would be able to uh, select people to move into these places. There was some work available, even though it was the Depression, in these communities, and there was land available that could be bought up quickly and built on, because the project had to happen fairly fast. Can you describe for me what this kind of community looks like? Absolutely. So it's a community that the, the land was purchased, and so the planners had the, the luxury or the ability to sort of design the town completely from the ground up and uh, utilize some of these new ideas in town planning. Rexford Tugwell had been influenced by the garden cities of, of England, really, places like Welwyn and Letchworth. So essentially, it's designed around a crescent shape. They used the natural lay of the land where they could, nor did they completely clear-cut trees. They left some trees in place, and others were taken to a nursery. So as a result, it has a very green, lush feeling. Um, when it was first built, there were groups of row homes that were in groups of two, four, and six. And some of those have a little unit at the end that's a single-level unit that was called a honeymoon cottage. And the largest have three bedrooms, and the smallest are just the single-unit studios. There also were several apartment buildings that were built, and those were primarily assigned to young married couples, or um, they did accept a few uh, single men into the project. So when people moved in here, when they were touring here and looking at it, it would have been expanses of very neatly manicured lawns with these striking white houses. Another interesting feature of the very early community was they took the window spaces and rather than um, leaving those white, they actually had a decorative brick um, string course coming off the windows and those were painted uh, very bright pastel colors. So blue, green, yellow, there was even a pink. My own theory is that some of this influence was coming from the World's Fairs. So the 33 World's Fair held in Chicago, um, I think, had an influence on them using color. You know, it, it marked it as um, a modern endeavor, you know, so it was white structures with these with these big blocks of color. And the there was a lot of shared green space. So the homes were integrated with the green space in a way that was really new. Today, cities around the world are discussing the concept of the superblock, a way to create multi-block sections of cities that are free from most traffic in order to reduce noise pollution and make safer, more walkable cities. In 1937, this idea that today is still new and experimental was implemented in Greenbelt. Homes faced away from the street so that people's front doors opened out onto shared gardens, playgrounds, and parks sheltered from the street. Where most homes today have a front door, the Greenbelt Row Homes had service sides where trash could be put out, laundry could be hung out, and deliveries could be made. And that had the effect of pushing the sidewalks and the roads for vehicles to the, to the outside of those blocks. And they replaced the sidewalks with a system of pathways and walkways that wound through the town. And this very um, efficiently separated vehicle traffic from pedestrian traffic. So it was a very safe community. The founders wanted to make sure the town lived up to its ideals of order, 
cleanliness, and community living. So there had to be rules. Rules about where to put out the trash, rules preventing fences, rules preventing pets, and rules about laundry. There are famous rules uh, about laundry here in Greenbelt. You couldn't have laundry hanging after 4 p.m., and you also uh, couldn't hang any laundry at all on Sundays. And we get a lot of questions about that, although in some ways it's not that different than some condo association rules. But essentially it was done, you know, um, one theory is that it was done um, to keep the place looking neat and tidy. If you think about overcrowded tenement housing and trash cans in the street and children playing in the gutters and laundry hanging between the buildings, Greenbelt was the antidote to that. There was a place for everything here. It was designed in, built in, plenty of places for kids to play. You know, the laundry would be hung out um, on the service side, but only, you know, in certain times. And it really had the effect, I think, of making um, the community visually striking. As much as this community appeals to me, I wonder how many contemporary Americans would be willing to sacrifice individual property liberties to get the benefits of a green town. And as you might expect, the town's model ruffled more than a few feathers in its time as well. This project was extremely controversial. It did go over budget. And they um, often had ambassadors and people from the government coming out to visit. It was a bit of a tourist attraction when it first opened. And there's no doubt in my mind that Tugwell and his administration were, were mindful of this and wanted it to look good and look a certain way. He was actually ridiculed um, <laughs> fairly frequently in the press. It was called Tugwell Town, and he was accused of being Rex the Red, you know, <laughs> associating him with these sort of socialist tendencies. He did tour Russia um, as part of his education experience, and he was very interested in cooperatives. So um, you can see how people who were suspicious of this, you know, um, called him that. But there's no doubt that he was, he was quite visionary and, you know, built this as, as, as a result of convincing people to try it. I want to take a quick break here to talk about this episode's sponsor, the Lindhurst Group. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. I've known Bob for a few years now, and I've long been impressed by his passion for our field and commitment to making it stronger. If you need help with your history organization, I highly recommend visiting lindhurstgroup.org. That's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org to learn more about how Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. Who lived here and how did they decide who got these apartments which and these houses which were very reasonably priced at the time, right? They were rentals. It was all a rental project. A big, big part of Greenbelt uh, was the selection process. There was um, a selection committee that decided who would be allowed to live in these experimental homes in this, in this community. And they um, very carefully selected families. There was a survey that had to be filled out. Um, someone from the committee would come and visit your home, ostensibly to see what kind of housekeeper the female head of household was, or to get an assessment of how the, the family they were visiting would um, adjust to being in this, in this new place. Um, Greenbelters themselves, when they first arrived, 
talked about it being a new way of living, that they were pioneers in a new way of living. So to this day, we call the early families that lived here at Greenbelt Pioneers. And they were very, very carefully reviewed. The planners were looking for people who would be willing to move into a brand new town. There was no town square here that had evolved from, you know, a merchant center. There were no elders. There was no body of government yet. They, you know, were looking for people who would push up their sleeves and form the many committees and groups and, you know, everything from a, uh, a journalism club that formed the newspaper to a theater group. There were also no doctors yet here. So the, the government had to decide, you know, how to, how to provide medical care. And a big part of the plan had been cooperatives. And so they were looking for people who were willing to support and shop at cooperatives, which Tugwell always intended would be a part of the downtown area. And at the time, um, cooperatives were seen as kind of a middle way, you know, between socialism and full capitalism. So the definition we use is a cooperative is a business that's owned and operated by the people who use or benefit from its services. So the people that lived here had a lot invested, literally, in making sure that these businesses thrived, including a grocery store. There was a movie theater that was run cooperatively. Um, there was a valet shop, a variety store. And all of these businesses received seed money or money for startup from Edward Filene. Um, the capitalist. So, you know, it's a really, there's so many layers to Greenbelt. There's so many different ways to look at it and lenses through which to view it. Importantly, as part of the selection process, African-Americans were excluded. Even though the, the workers that had built Greenbelt were both African-American and white, only white families were allowed to apply to live here. This is something that uh, we believe was the case primarily because Prince George's County was such um, a segregated county, deeply segregated. And so even though the planners, the very early iterations of the plan seemed to include a section of the land that was called the Rossville Rural Development, we think that that was the place that African-American families would have lived. But that was a different model than the rest of Greenbelt. That would have been something called subsistence homesteads, mm. which were another type of New Deal community that was built and those were uh, marked by a house on about five acres of land that African-Americans could farm and you could sell your excess and have enough to feed your family. This whole plan was jettisoned very early on. Um, there was a great deal of opposition to it, particularly from a Maryland senator named Senator Sasser, who absolutely um, was against it. And the planners in various earlier documents and things that were written about Greenbelt, it seems apparent that they realized that if they pushed for that, they were jeopardizing the project. And so they seem to have let that go. There were other New Deal communities that were built specifically for African-Americans, one in Washington, D.C. called Langston Terrace Dwellings, and the other um, in the Mid-Atlantic region was in Newport News, Virginia, and that was called Newport News Homesteads. Now it's called Aberdeen Gardens, and um, that community is still there, as is Langston Terrace. So it's an unfortunate reality that even though African-Americans helped to build it, they were not part of the group that could apply here. And that narrative is something that we at the museum have tried very hard to make sure people understand. It's important. And it's uh, something that when we use words like utopia and, you know, these ideal living conditions, and we have to remember it was only utopia for white families, not for African-Americans who could not apply to live here. Hated to get out of bed, but I called 
man and this is what he said it's gonna be a good day a Early on, community members recognized that the material history of Greenbelt needed to be preserved. And in 1987, on the 50th anniversary of the town's founding, a group of volunteers opened the Greenbelt Museum in one of the tiny original row homes. So we're standing outside of the house on the service side. This is the side that faces the street. And it's a two-story cinder block structure painted white. Uh, we've painted it with green trim. This is also the side um, with the driveway, as I already mentioned, the garage. So this is the side that hits the street. And you'll notice there's no sidewalk there. That's because the sidewalk that would normally be beside the road is actually an inner walkway that goes through the green space and winds around through there. This house is 836 square feet, and it is uh, two bedrooms upstairs and a living room, dining room combined, and kitchen on the first floor. So we'll head in. We're going to open our screen door here. And here we are inside the museum house. It's a little echoey. The floors are black tile. They were originally uh, asbestos, so we had to take those out and replace them. But the planners did intend that these floors would be um, ultimately utilitarian. And in a way they were, but this is one of the things that the housewives absolutely hated about Greenbelt <laughs> uh, because they would they would clean it, polish it, and the family would come from home from their day and it'd be scuffed and dirty immediately. So if you've ever had a black floor, you know what that's like. Um, so we'll go ahead and step on into the kitchen here. And this is a, a small square room. Um, state-of-the-art for 1937 kitchen design, <laughs> all white. For someone moving into this space in 1937, this was really a dream come true. Many of the housewives that we have oral histories of, um, and the kids as well, you know, remarked upon how bright and shiny the kitchen was. You know, these are families that might have been living in a place where they only had a little Bunsen burner, you know, literally like one little, um, one little heating coil, or they might have shared a kitchen, or they might have had a wood burning stove or coal burning even. And this is an electric, um, electric range, an electric stove. So that was something that people had to be taught how to use. In <laughs> fact, Pepco came out, the local power company came out to hold a um, class on how to use your electric cooker. So there's the little tiny space in there. You can see it's not that big, but it's adequate. For it's exactly the same size as my European <laughs> stove. Right? This is like in Europe, like if you're in an apartment, this is the size of your stove. In fact, uh, I was giving, one of my famous stories is I was giving a tour to uh, landscape architects, a group of landscape architect students from Berlin. And I was remarking on the size of the house and how small it is. And they said, they raised an eyebrow and said, well, maybe by... United States standards, but anywhere else in the world. This is actually a, a really good sized um, unit for a family of three, you know, maybe even four, maybe more. But, um, you know, it, it also speaks to how our expectations 
of living spaces mm. are so different today. Um, so when we bring kids in, in particular, at the end of the tour, I always ask them, you know, would you like to live here? And they're usually neatly divided. The kids that are very much yes, because the playground's right outside and there's a lake and there's movies and, you know, a big pool here. And the kids that say no, you know, and those are the kids that they say, I wouldn't have my video games and mm-hmm. I need my own room. And, you know, so it's a really interesting dynamic to compare it to today. This little house challenges so much of what we take for granted in our living conditions today. If you visit historic house museums, you're typically learning about a way of life from the 1800s or the 1920s at the latest. It's rare to tour a quote-unquote historic home from the 1930s or the 40s, let alone the home of a low-income family. At first glance, it seems like a really average little house, with all the basic amenities and some nice furniture. The simple but pleasant space is not surprising, and you may even wonder why it's a museum, until you learn that so many of its basic features were in fact state-of-the-art interior design elements that wouldn't see regular use in American homes for up to a decade later. The fact that this home would have been a dream come true for its renters makes you stop and think about the household luxuries that we take for granted every day. Um, Also, there's overhead lighting throughout the whole house. And even that is something that was not necessarily included in in many homes, particularly before this time. It was a relatively new interior design um, element. You know, the the important part about that is also um, every room here has a window. So combined with the overhead lighting and the windows, there were no dark spaces. There were no dank, you know, spaces that never got light. And that was also a big part of the plan here. The homes are even situated on the landscape in such a way as to catch the natural cross breezes. Ridge Road is actually on a bit of a ridge, and Crescent Road actually forms a crescent around the man-made lake, which was the first project that workers worked on when they arrived here. So in the days before air conditioning, that was extremely important. They needed um, you know, a way to have cross breezes. The people who laid out this place didn't forget that air and sun are what we need for growing whether it's flowers or babies. Just watch us grow. The scales won't hold us soon. So here we are in the living room, dining room combined. In this space, um, we can see half of it has a dining room table. Um, The other half is a desk and a radio and a chair and a fairly large uh, couch. The furniture in this room was actually designed by the federal government to fit in these homes. It's one of the, the really fascinating stories about Greenbelt. Uh, so the, the, the division that did it was called the Special Skills Division within the Resettlement Administration. And they came up with the designs and the blueprints, clearly taking a lot of cues from Europe. This looks like furniture that was coming out of Europe in the 30s, you know, in the, in the very early 30s and in the second half of the 20s. Designers like Alvar Aalto um, and I'm trying to think of others. Uh, it looks a lot like furniture that would happen to be popular uh, following World War II. Yeah, it's got that mid-century, mid-century like modern, Danish exactly. uh, look a bit. A little exactly. little, little clunkier, but, little clunkier. but definitely it had, I mean, and I assume this solid. would be very trendy today. It's very trendy. We get lots of requests. People want this furniture. <laughs> and there's a lot still here in families' houses. And some of the pieces are convertible. It was really clever. They worked with an, uh, an interior designer very carefully to try to envision how much furniture people would need, what pieces, you know, how big. You can see the sofa is very low to the ground. 
and uh, it has a lower profile than some of that big overstuffed furniture from the time period. And that's to make the room appear larger. So they knew they were working in small spaces. Now families could buy one piece or they could buy a whole house full. And many families did a combination of those. There was a show room in the center of town and you could go down there and choose your pieces. But it took a while. There were much more, many more requests for it than they had made. So there was a long delay for some people to get their furniture. It was sort of a housewife's lament, as it, as it said. Um, we're standing here on the rug that was actually the first rug that was used in this house by the family that moved into this unit. It was the LaSalle family. And they brought this rug with them. It's an uh, oriental design uh, with a center medallion and, and lots of colorful, uh, color, very colorful border. Not really modernist at all. <laughs> so, uh, but we like to point it out because it shows that people were really combining, you know, things that they had with things that the the project was providing. And as we're standing in this room, you'll notice um, we don't have any velvet ropes. We used to have velvet ropes that would literally restrict visitors to about a three foot by nine foot space to look into the rest of the room. This is something that is a bit controversial, but in the museum world, there is a um, an effort and an urge to sort of try to engage people more emotionally. If you don't manage to do that, they may not come back. We have dropped the velvet ropes, which was a sort of difficult thing to do, both sort of physically and psychologically, because I'm <laughs> trained as a curator to protect artifacts at all costs. Um, however, we're in a unique situation. You know, the table has fiesta wear on it. You know, this is a very popular dinnerware from the 30s that's easily accessible. You know, we have a couch that does not have its original upholstery on it, even though the, the wood frame is original. We decided to, you know, let people sit there. I spoke at a docent training session and really explained to the volunteers why we were doing this to let people experience the home in a, in a much more authentic way and hopefully to engage them so that they'll come back or they'll become members or, you know, they'll want to share the experience with others. And uh, so far, it's been very successful. One person leading this charge is um, Franklin Vagnone, who co-wrote a book called The House Museum Anarchist. And he has been trying to inspire historic houses to do this, to be a little more inventive, be a little more creative, be a bit more relaxed. Um, if there are things that are especially fragile or rare, take them off display, you know, put in something that's a facsimile or that is of the era that's similar and let people sit on it, let people pick it up. And this is something that I've been working towards as well and then discovered him. And there's no reason why we can't allow people, you know, into this home in that same way. And it really has made a difference. I have a picture of a Boy Scout troop that came and they're all sort of lined up against the wall you know, kind of glum faces, just, you know, looking at, gazing at the rest of the room. And then we have a, a brownie troop that came and we set up what we call a teddy bear picnic activity where we have china and, and um, spoons and a little teapot and teddy bears and they were spread out on the floor and just the smiles on their faces, you know, speak volumes in terms of the yeah. different kinds of experience that they're having. Does that mean I can sit on the couch? Yes, please. Here we go. So, are you still recording? Please have yeah, a Yeah, I am. Oh, yeah. So you okay. can experience how different the room looks. Oh, this is quite nice from it's here. It's much different. Oh, this is like, I would, I would, if I had to live, if I was going to live in this area, like, and I could pick a home, this is nice. You got windows on each side. I can see the kitchen window. I can see the park out back. Maybe I can see a little of the neighbor's house. And with both screen doors open, you'd have Ooh, the option yeah. of a really lovely cross breeze. 
Um, and as you look out through the window on the garden side, it's this beautiful green space with trees. It's hard to believe that you're 15 miles outside of the nation's capital. Yeah. You know, it's quite... Um, yeah. yeah, it's so, nice. Okay. We can go upstairs now. I'll yeah, come, up. come on upstairs. So up here... We have two bedrooms, a bathroom, and a nice uh, linen closet. And this unit really was intended for a family with mother, father, and one child. If you had another child, you would be asked to go to the central office here in town and request a larger unit, because then um, you'd have the right-sized family living in the right-sized space. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people did do that. So it's a fair amount of involvement in your business by the government. <laughs> but, you know, it seems like people were willing to do that, to have this kind of extraordinary living space. We're standing now in the, the master bedroom. Not a huge room, but it's, um, it feels spacious enough. There's a light green paint on the wall. Um, we only had written descriptions, so this was our best guess as to what the color was. It's sort of a celery green, a light, light celery green. And you can see there's two windows here, one at the corner, both, both sort of meet at the corner. And you can look out over the garden side right over to a playground and to other courts that are in the, this um, part of the community. And it's very quiet and peaceful. And let me open this door and go ahead and peek into the closet. Okay, I'm going look, into the closet. If you look to your right, you see how far over it goes. Yeah, oh, ooh, nice. Isn't that nice? Oh, and I'm and loving these clothes in here. It's storage space. We have clothes on display from the era. It's the mauve and, and the uh, mustard and avocado colors really that nice. are basically the Ikea colors of the season right now. Does this count as millennium pink? It's almost millennium pink. So, but it's an extraordinary amount of storage, you know, which yeah, is really nice. interesting. So I think the planners, you know, you never want to try to get into anyone's head, but, you know, we, we, we do think that the folks that were building this and designing it, I think, had the expectation that more prosperity was coming. You know, that the families that were going to stay in these homes and live here would need some storage. Even if when they moved in, they might have only had, you right. know, one nice outfit for a church and one for work. And, you know, the kids maybe had three clothes, you know. It's kind of sad. interesting for a, for a project that's rather, I guess, communistic in, in, or, or egalitarian in, in, um, in design to have this kind of aspirational capitalism closet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but so people did have a All cap on their on their income here though, they right? Did, so there was only did. a certain amount of uh, wealth they could acquire. Make, you had to make under 2200. Um, I think it was a year. A year. And then there was a, a floor as well. So it was I think it was between 800 and 2200. There are stories of people turning down uh, promotions at work mm -hmm. because the quality of life here was so extraordinary that they didn't want to move. So now some families did end up moving a common story in Greenbelt is that they might have started in one of the original constructed homes, and then they might have moved to a larger original home, and then eventually to one of the freestanding homes that was built as part of the infill development that really started um, to be built in the in the late 40s and 50s. People sort of moved, you know, according to their family's needs. But there are plenty of families that stayed in their in their homes, uh, their original homes, and have been there ever since. In the children's room, a 10 by 10 space filled with touchable dolls, clothes, and toys for visiting kids to play with, Megan shares another plan to make the whole house more hands-on for visitors of all ages. 
and eventually we want to have all the things in the drawers also be appropriate. So appropriate clothing or, you yeah. know, unmentionables in the ladies drawer or, you know, um, pajamas and things like that. So it's one of those things that, um, it's sort of on the to-do list. Oh, that'd be really fun to just be able to unpack a, exactly. a, a room, you know, exactly. even if you can sit in places, you can never open and you like open un, un, put, take out the stuff and, and look in the closets. And the other thing though, that we've tried very hard to do in this house is not have a lot of labels. Mm-hmm. You know, we really want it to feel like you're walking into the house and the family might've just, just walked out. Once I've toured the house and gotten a feel for what it was actually like to live here, Megan and I head into town to see the shopping center and imagine what it was like for the original community members to do their errands. I said to the sun, good morning sun, you'd better rise and you'd better shine today. You know you gotta get We've just walked out of the house and shut the screen door, and we're going to access the system of walkways and pathways that wind through the town. And we're heading into a place where the path um, goes right between two courts, and you can see how many additions and changes people have made over the years. See, this is so cute because we're walking in this really narrow lane between hedges and we're kind of walking past people's front doors. So you get the nice little tidy front lawns, um, which is interesting. I've never really walked around Greenbelt. I've only ever driven through Greenbelt. So I've never seen this aspect and and it it does, it just feels very cottagey. It feels very very European. It's very, it's very much like that. And we say to people all the time, if you have the time, you know, book a walking tour um, because that way you get to, you know, really experience what all this is like. Um, which you don't see from the road. And that's by design. You know, they separated pedestrians um, from vehicles. And that is one of the things that you really feel as you're walking around. This is no suburb where the lucky people play at living in the country. This kind of city spells cooperation. Wherever doing things together means cheapness or efficiency or better living. Each house is grouped with other houses close to the school, the public meeting hall, the movies, and the markets. Around these green communities, a belt of public land preserves their shape forever. The children need the earth for playing and growing. But you can see here, you can tell where you are. We're on the garden side because there's no trash closets. (laughs) So you can always situate yourselves by looking for the trash closets. Those are only on the service sides. Now, early on, these hedges would not have been allowed to be this high. You could only have a hedge that was 18 inches tall, which would have, again, reinforced that sense of space and openness and a sort of, um, you know, you couldn't, a lot of people, you know, have these high hedges to provide privacy. And that was not the idea. You know, they really wanted the communities, um, particularly within the courts, to sort of gel, you know, sort of become a smaller unit within the larger unit of the community. And many of them did. Just recently, I was giving a walking tour and, and someone came out from one of these houses and said, this is 13 court and said, well, our court's the best. We have an annual barbecue that beats everything. You know, we went a few, a few more uh, paces up, up the pathway and ran into someone else. 
And they said, well, we're glad you came here because our court is the best. You know, we do the best. <laughs> we do the best annual yard sale. You know, or there's just any, any kind of thing that um, people really do identify with where they are in Greenbelt. And it's one of those things that people who come back here say, that's how they identify themselves. I lived in 13 court. I lived in, you know, this court or that court. And we know from oral histories that, for instance, housewives knew who, which family got paid when. So if one family was a little bit short, you might go down to your neighbor and say, hey, can I borrow X amount of money until my husband gets paid? And you could, you could do that. It really was a kind of cooperative spirit. Mm. Also, kids growing up here did not realize that it was unusual that they lived next to Catholics on one side and a Jewish family on the other. You know, that was incredibly unusual for 1930s um, U.S. Typically, you had neighborhoods that were all, you know, worshipped the same. And here, it, it, everybody was intermingled. And kids often and talk about it. was about, designed that way, right? It was designed that way. It was absolutely designed that way. It's not to say there wasn't anti-Semitism here. There was. But it's, it's um, you know, it doesn't sound like it was as pervasive as, it, as in some other places. So we're going to go oh, back yeah, to cool. the main path here. I'd like to stop here as well, because if you look straight ahead of you, that's what, maybe a block, block and a half away, you can see the front doors of the community center. And this is the kind of careful landscape design that they did. You know, from all the way back there, standing up on that hill, you have a straight visual line uh, to the community center, which they really, the planners really intended was going to be the heart of the community. And it still is in a lot of ways. As we walk between the houses along narrow hedge-lined paths, Megan points out the care that most people have taken with their yards, which at this time of year are filled with flowers, outdoor furniture, and other evidence that residents have been taking advantage of the peaceful, shady areas created by houses that face each other and parks rather than streets. And we're coming up on yet another little playground. They call these pocket parks. There were three major playgrounds built in 37 and I think 13 smaller ones. So it really was designed with children in mind. The belt of green space that surrounds Greenbelt, um, unfortunately was sold off, largely when the government sold this property and the co-op that formed couldn't afford to buy everything. In 1952, Congress voted to sell off Rexford Tugwell's green towns. With their way of life threatened, the citizens of Greenbelt banded together formed a housing cooperative, and bought most of the original town. That co-op is still going strong today, under the name Greenbelt Homes, Inc. The grocery store, movie theater, restaurant, and a few other key public amenities are also still run through co-ops. The parts they did buy, some of them they sold off. And that's both good and bad. It certainly cuts down on recreational space. And it was intended originally as a buffer against encroaching development, um, but some of that development has helped to support property taxes here, which the other two, Green Hills and Greendale, I think, don't necessarily have the benefit of. As we cross one more small courtyard park on our way into town, passing neighbors smile and say hi. Hello. How are you? Good, thank you. So now we're sort of a little bit at the top of the ridge and we're looking down on the commercial area that's also original from 37, and we're about to walk through one of the underpasses. And this is one of those um, very carefully designed scenes where you head down, and as you walk down the hill, you walk through the very shady underpass, and then the commercial center sort of unfolds in front of you. 
very deliberate, I think, very much the aim of the town planners. Here we are on the other side. The underpass allows us to walk right from a courtyard park to the town center without crossing any streets. We step out into a picturesque square surrounded by two-story white brick buildings. A few mature trees in the center offer shade to people sitting on the benches. Megan tells me that this was one of the first shopping centers in the country designed with cars in mind. So we're headed here to the front of, as I said, what's now the community center. It was called Center School. And the planners always intended that it would have students in the day and space for meetings and things in the night. They seemed to realize that if they were going to you know, start this community and ask everybody to, um, to push up their sleeves and form all these committees, they would need places to meet. It's still an issue, you know. This, this building is so beautiful. It gets called a lot of different things. Some people call it Art Deco. Some people call it Modernist International Style. Greenbelters called the design of this building and of some of the homes functionalist, which I kind of like. You yeah. know, it's not overly fancy, but it's, it's very beautiful in its restraint. And um, this does get called one of the more significant examples of municipal Art Deco architecture in the region. <laughs> so it's a mouthful, but we'll take it. Yeah, and so it's painted bright white, and uh, the trim around the windows is like a sort of rusty orange color. There's buttressing, and there's significant art on the front of it. So this building actually was almost torn down. The school board had used it for years and years, and um, it wasn't in great shape. I think there were some leaks and things, and pretty much it went to a referendum. But it was saved, and it has been repurposed, and I think everyone would agree now it's a huge success. Um, we love to show this building to historic preservation students, to, to show them what a really successful repurpose looks like. Right now it's thriving with all kinds of classes and activities, and there's services for seniors, there's a hot lunch program, there's, there's classes, there are, you can take Scottish country dancing here, but you can also take ceramics, there's a nursery school, cooperative nursery school in it, the museum offices are in it. It's just, it's full and thriving, you know, and it really is, in a lot of ways, the heart of the community. Greenbelt was a radical idea in the 1930s. The planners embraced ideas of religious integration and community-centered living that we can still look to as models today. But as Megan explained to me, the town was also born into a culture of racial segregation that enforced a strictly all-white citizenry. A Citizens for Fair Housing group began advocating for integration in the early 1960s, but the town remained segregated until the end of the 60s, and only then were African Americans allowed to move into a town built largely by African American workers. Today, Greenbelters pride themselves on their diverse, inclusive community, and the Greenbelt Museum is helping to tell a balanced story of the town that highlights the innovations and sustainable community models of its founders without hiding the darker sides of its history. But the first seeds of resistance to injustice in the town were planted in the town's earliest days in the form of relief sculptures on the facade of the community center. A young sculptor named Lenore Thomas Strauss was commissioned to create these panels along with several other artworks for the community. Each panel on the community center illustrates a line from the preamble to the Constitution. For example, a more perfect union is illustrated by office workers and farmers shaking hands and working together for a better society. In a more provocative panel, 
provide for the common defense is represented by a farmer standing in front of his family with his shoulder turned to resist the oncoming soldiers that represent the U.S. war machine who leave crosses in their wake. In the Greenbelt Museum's exhibit room in the community center, there's a photograph of one panel design that was rejected. In the model relief panel, established justice is represented by a judge and jury standing with their backs turned away from a group of hooded figures hanging a man from a tree. The established justice sculpture that ended up on the building is far more traditional, but thanks to the work of the Greenbelt Museum in uncovering the original design and researching the artist, and the community members who chose to preserve the building, the complete set of panels remain as a testament to both the complicated history of this utopia and the time in which it was born, as well as the progressive ideas that the community has managed to keep alive and well for all these years, so that future generations of city planners can look to Greenbelt and be inspired to create neighborhoods that prioritize quality of life and community over profit. You take your choice. One is real, each one is possible. Shall we sink deeper, sink deeper in old grooves, paying for blight with human misery? Or have we vision? Have we courage? Shall we build and rebuild our cities, clean again, close to the earth, open to the sky? Can we afford a house, a neighborhood, a city as good as this for everyone? Maybe the question is, can we afford all this disorder? The hospitals, the jails, reformatories, the wasted years of childhood. Order has come. Order and life together. We've got the skill, we've found the way. We've built the cities. It's here, the new city, ready to serve a better age. You and your children, the choice is yours. Thanks for joining me on this adventure as I explore Maryland's museums. Today's episode was sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. The featured song in this episode is Good Morning by Katie Starr. If you enjoy museums in strange places, please help me keep it going by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing this episode with a friend. Interested in starting a podcast at your organization? Check out my new book, Your Museum Needs a Podcast, a step-by-step guide to podcasting on a budget for museums, history organizations, and cultural nonprofits. Your Museum Needs a Podcast is available on Amazon as an ebook, paperback, and audible audiobook.